Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutille, and I'm talking from the Alan Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in downtown Toronto. I think there's a general agreement that schools are important to society for a number of important reasons. One of them is to teach children basic skills in language, communications, and basic math. Others will say that schools are essential to impart social skills. But what if they did more than that? What role do they play in a country like Canada that seems to redefine itself continuously? With me today is Robert Vipond, a professor of political science at the University of Toronto. He wrote a book about a special school, the Clinton Street Public School in Toronto. The book's title says a lot. It's called Making a Global City, How One Toronto School Embraced Diversity. It was published by the University of Toronto Press. Robert, welcome to the mic. Thank you very much for inviting me. Your daughter, you say in your book, uh, your daughter attended Clinton Street Public School. Is that why you wrote the book? What, what prompted you to dedicate so much work to this study? Exactly right. My, my daughter attended the, attended the school. It was founded in 1888, so they were coming up in 2012-13 to their 125th anniversary. And the uh, principal at the time pigeonholed me one day and said, Hmm. Are you interested in history? It's a sort of an a question that I couldn't really say no to. So I said sure. And before I knew it, uh, I had been uh, uh, conscripted onto the parent advisory committee for the 125th anniversary, uh, which was which was terrific. I was happy to do it. And you know, like most uh, parents at Clinton, I knew that it had a a storied uh, history. It was always we knew a gateway school for immigrant immigrant children, waves and generations of, of kids uh, for whom this had been really the, the introduction to, to Toronto and to Canada. But I didn't really know that much more about it. So the principal, having, uh, as I say, conscripted me onto this committee, took me to a little room off her office, and she pointed to this stack of, you know, the old card catalogs, those old drawers you'd pull, pull open, these old steel things, and she's pointed to them floor to ceiling. She says, those are all of the registration cards for every kid who has been at this school since 1920. And so the social scientist in me said, gold mine. How can you resist? How I could... <laughs> and I just began to piece it together from, from that and to discover that, in fact, it, it really was uh, uh, an exceptionally rich story. Now, for those people who do not know Toronto, because we have, we have listeners from around the world, can you situate the school for us? It's not the same building, is it? Is it the, the building that stands there now is not the original building. No, there have actually been three buildings now. Always on the same location? Always on the same location. So this, for anyone who knows anything, it's downtown Toronto in the heart of what is now called Little Italy, which is so west of Bathurst Street, just a little bit north of college. Um, it hugs a, the U of T campus. It's very close to the yeah. University of Toronto campus. That's right. It it was founded in 1888. All, all of... Uh, call it uh, Toronto West, really opened up after 1880, which is the point at which the college streetcar um, moved beyond Bathurst Street. And that really opened up, opened up the West End. Because this is what makes this school special is, is its clientele. The demographics you demonstrate in your book have changed dramatically over the years. Can you tell us more about that? So originally, in the, when it was founded, it, it was 
um, a school that catered to essentially Anglo-Saxon, Anglo-Celtic students. Lots of them were actually immigrant kids, but mainly almost all immigrants from the British Isles. Mm -hmm. Um, And then things turned dramatically after the First World War, and that's really where I pick up the story, in part because I have all of the registration cards. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the 20s, it it became much, much more Jewish. Um, as the Jewish population moved west, wanted to stay near Spadina, which was the epicenter of the textile trade, uh, but they moved west as became more prosperous, uh, began to buy houses or rent houses uh, in that area, so that uh, through the 20s, 30s, and 40s, it was largely uh, largely Jewish. I mean, as many as 65, 70, 75 percent of the students were were Jewish, but lots of others as well, Ukrainians, Italians, uh, Italians uh, Poles, especially from Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, and then very, very quickly it changed. As the Jewish population became more prosperous and moved to the suburbs, it changed um, almost on a dime. In, in 1953... You can pin it down to that date. I can actually <laughs> pin it down. In 1953, 35% of the incoming students uh, to Clinton were Jewish, 35% were Catholic. And by that point, that really meant mainly Italian. Mm-hmm. By 1960, only 5% were Jewish, 75% were Catholic. So it turned very, very quickly with this surge of Italian uh, immigration into, into the city. Onto that was then added Portuguese uh, immigration and kids in the late 60s, early 70s. Um, and what's and the, it like now? Well, by the mid-70s, it had become just sort of crazily multicultural with uh, Italian, Portuguese, uh, East Asian, Hispanic, uh, and then professionals beginning to return to the downtown area. And now it is, uh, it, it, it's still mixed, but it's not, it's not as mixed ethnically or culturally as it, as it was uh, in its heyday as a multicultural school, I have to say. Now, the title of your book is How One Toronto School Embraced Diversity. What's your sense of how it did that? I mean, was it a change of policy? Was it an adaptation of policy? Or did they create new policy? What, how did this school embrace diversity? What do you mean by that? What I do is I, I use the book. It became clear that there were, in the first place, three, as I have suggested, three mm-hmm. separate school communities, if you like, over the, over the history. One I call Jewish Clinton. The second I call European or South, Southern European uh, Clinton, and the third I call Global Clinton. Each of each of those, in a way, uh, had a different answer to this fundamental question. What does it mean to be a citizen? Um, who belongs on what terms and to what end is what I mean by, by citizenship. So the answers to those questions changed quite dramatically over over the course of the, the three Clintons, over the course of the, of the 70 years that, that I chronicle in the book. Um, it was very clearly assimilationist at the beginning, um, though the question of what to do when 65% or 70% of your uh, students were, were, were Jewish, uh, to have Protestant religious exercises mandated by the provincial government okay, was a trick. Let's open a parenthesis here. These are, as you say, public schools, but they were teaching Christianity. Absolutely. Yeah. How'd that go over? Well... Um, you, and you actually specify the Drew, these are the, the, uh, the, the regulations brought in by George Drew to, re, to emphasize Christianity in public schools. Exactly. So this wasn't just the, uh, the typical religious exercises of a, of a hymn in the Lord's Prayer and maybe a Bible reading at the beginning of the day. This was legislation that mandated in 1944 uh, the teaching of religion 
for two half-hour periods per week in every public school, grades one to eight in Ontario. So this was this was exceptional. I mean, really very, and it was quite clear that the idea was, as the uh, the guidelines from the Department of Education said uh, separately, uh, that the goal was to uh, create. Uh, students who would be citizens in a democratic and Christian country. Um, so this was uh, this this was the fiat from a uh, from a from above. Uh, what did Clinton do? Well, it passively resisted it. Actually, uh, the community did. The community, the teachers and and principal and uh, parents clearly saw eye to eye on this and mm. just took a pass. Uh, on the harshest of those those religious exercises, understanding that this was not something that was going to go over very well in a in a school that was largely uh, largely you, you Jewish. You said earlier it created a sense of belonging. Can you? What do you mean by that? I mean, this is an important aspect of school experience, is it not? To learn that we belong, to to to, to somehow um, reassure the child that they do belong in society, that they do belong in Canadian society. I get the impression reading your book that Clinton was particularly good at that. It made some mistakes along the way, but in general, it's, it's, a, it's a good story, I think, uh, a story of um, how it found common ground. Uh, it found ways to, um, to build a sense of, of common citizenship, of commonality, by stressing what um, students had in common rather than what divided them. Uh, that was done in part by pointing out the importance of heritage, um, the importance you know, during the war against Nazis. But it, it was also, I, I call it the axis of good um, between the principal, teachers, and parents. What they wanted more than anything was an, an education that would allow their kids to, get, uh, to move up the ladder in Canadian society. That was really what, what united them. Whether they were Jewish or Catholic or Protestant or whatever was meant to be much less important. The task was more integration and less assimilation. How do you see that difference? Integrate so, them into society. These foreign—I mean, these these were foreign foreign kids of foreigners, or these are kids that were born outside of Canada. Right. In the 30s and 40s, uh, well into the and well into the 50s, I think the official policy of school boards as well as the government of Ontario was to um, assimilate kids. Um, I quote in the book from C.C. Goldring, who for many years was the um, director, as they called it, what we'd probably now call the superintendent of mm -hmm. the Toronto Board of Education. He wrote a, a textbook uh, called Citizenship, and it was meant to be used in junior highs, I believe. And, and he defined citizenship there uh, in this really interesting way. He says, there must be time for the newcomer to prove his worth to learn Canadian ways, to develop a desire to become a good, loyal Canadian citizen, and then to renounce the citizenship of his former country. Wow. So that's, that's assimilation. It's, it's check, your, check your identity, at, other identity at the door, right? It's, there is a standard, we call it, it's a fixed standard. It is what's called Canada. And you do your best as someone new to the country to live up to that standard. Uh, and yet your impression is that at at uh, at this school, this is a negotiated thing. It is was, it or is it? It was negotiated. Yes. I, as I like to think of it, uh, to quote a, um, a very interesting report that was done in 1965, so really early actually, uh, in, uh, in, in this whole development, uh, a report that talked about integration rather than assimilation and made the point that this is not just a one-way street. It's not just these students learning what it is to become 
Canadian to, you know, to go up that ladder to ring the, the bell that says Canada, but rather a two-way street mm-hmm. in, which it, in which we understand as a society that there are actually not – there are some interesting things that can be taken from – that we can gain from though, uh, those who enter the, the, the country as well as uh, they're learning our ways. As it, it seems were. as though Clinton Street School was ahead of policy. We, now, the Multicultural Act is 1971, came down in 1971. The, liberal, the Trudeau Liberal government uh, brought this down. It seems as though the Trudeau Liberals were learning from Clinton Street. Am I, am, I, am I exaggerating in that? I mean, it seems as though the lived experience of Canadians is what informed the government, not vice versa. I think that's exactly right. I think that, that phrase, lived experience, is exactly what it's about. Um, One of my pet peeves about the way in which multiculturalism is studied and described in this country, the history of it, is that too much of it focuses on uh, precisely that statement in October of 1971 and the subsequent uh, multicultural acts. And it's usually, both for boosters and and detractors of multiculturalism, that's usually seen in the context of assuaging uh, Quebec on the one hand for bilingualism and hence the rest of the country by providing some, you know, something else, namely multiculturalism. But in fact, the folks at Clinton Street Public School could have cared less about what was going on in those national debates. They were they, they needed were doing to, they needed to solve problems, you know, on the playground. As now, let's talk about those people. Um, the teachers must have been awfully special here, and there are a few pictures in your book of, of uh, the teachers and sometimes at their classrooms. Uh, one teacher stands out, a Mr. Goff, a black man who taught at uh, Clinton Street for 30 years. What were these teachers like? Did you get a sense of who these special people were? To some extent. Unfortunately, many of them have passed. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was able to reconstruct uh, uh, some of their lives and, and so on from, from the records, though I did I, in in the course of writing the book, I, I uh, uh, did about 60 interviews, all told, uh, with teachers and some parents at, and some of some of the former teachers. Um, and they, they, they were, for the most part, quite, quite remarkable. Um, the pictures re- you show, I mean, again, there are only a few pictures. They're great. Uh, a lot of women teaching, a lot of men teaching. It looked like it was a nice mix of, of, of gender. I mean, it's... Uh... But there must have been spe- something special about these people who'd be attracted to, to work in a, in a in a laboratory. Dare I call it a laboratory called Clinton Street? I mean, it must have been. That's a- right. I mean, I th- I think of the uh, the man in in uh, the nineteen forties, Mister Timpson, who you know at this point the school was was uh, largely Jewish, and he felt badly for Jewish students during Christmas because everything was uh, everything was was tilted to. Christmas sure, trees and yes. carols. So there he was, this Anglo-Protestant guy from Leaside, uh, who made uh, his own uh, uh, homemade version of a uh, of the candelabra, the the Hanukia, yes, uh, the menorah, um, out of hula hoops and brought it to school and put it in the room right beside the Christmas tree, so that the Jewish kids could feel as if um, they were equal. In Talk this. about belonging. Yeah. And then took it back to Leaside and put it in his front window, oh, really? where the, when the 1941 census said there were actually zero Jews in Leaside, right? So <laughs> it, was a, it was a remark. So it's that, that sort of, it seemed to bring out the best in many of those teachers who were, and I'm not sure. I mean, in one way, I suspect that the, uh, the teachers there were special. In another, I bet if, I, if someone else were to write a, uh, 
uh, a history of other schools, they would find equally special teachers. Uh. Okay, so let's talk about your method here. You say you encountered, you were presented with this fantastic list or, or cue cards, I presume, of every student. Well, how did you go about writing this book? Give us an insight. I mean, the Champlain Society is about documentation, so we're always curious about how people go about documenting their books. So it was an interesting process. Um, uh, I'm not someone who has specialized in quantitative political science, so I uh, engaged several graduate students who uh, do know their way around. We created a random sample of these about 25,000 registration cards in the end. That is some sample. Yeah, in a way that would be... Um, uh, that we knew we could create accurate uh, uh, statistical trends from. Uh, and then we began coding coding each of the cards. The cards provided the name of the student, where the student is born, the names of the parents and where the parents are born. So we were able to track immigration status from that, wow. you know, first generation, second generation, and so on. It would give the name early on. It was only the father. Later was father and mother, their occupation. So you get from that sort of class. And then the religion they profess. So you get from that religion, ethnicity, and and so on. It also gave information about uh, where uh, where the child lived, the rooms to which they had been assigned, um, and then sometimes on the back you'd get um, uh, interesting behavioral tidbits, <laughs> indiscretions, and and so on and so forth. In addition to that, I had um, uh, two huge registers which. Um, uh, documented all of the times that corporal punishment was uh, was used. Every time uh, a child was strapped, or as they said in those days, slapped, uh, and the um, the offense for uh, for which they were being punished, and and so on and so forth. So there's quite a lot of information which then could be rendered into uh, graphs and tables to provide a very a very granular sort of. Uh, I don't uh, want to put record. you on the spot, but was there a more violent decade than that stands out, or was the punishment meted out fairly consistently across the years? <laughs> no, it uh, peaked in the peaked in the thirties in nineteen thirty two thirty three. Um, something like two hundred and fifty strappings occurred in the school. I worked it out; it was about twenty five percent of the uh, the school must have had their hands reddened by this. Oh my goodness! Uh, then there were very there were various scandals. Actually, came to the. Uh, the, the uh, allegations of abuse and so on and so forth. So uh, the uh, the director of the Board of Education sent out a circular saying you really shouldn't be using this uh, nearly as much. And in fact, it did decline, um, went back up a little bit, but then declined and was ultimately uh, used in the 60s very, very sparingly and then was outlawed in 1970, I believe. Yeah. Uh, and, and I have to say, the the, the practice of, of professing Christianity in public school persisted well into the 1990s. It's not like we're like this is this is ancient history. I mean, I was at I was present in meetings uh, of of uh, public schools uh, into the mid 1990s, and they were still reciting the Lord's Prayer. I mean, it, it took a long time to secularize the public school system in Ontario. Indeed, the uh, the particular Drew regulations that had been brought in in 1944 were only struck down. Uh, as a violation of the Charter's Religious Freedom Clause, Section 1, in 1990. Right. Um, and then the lead lawyer was Alan Borovoy, uh, <laughs> who was a graduate of, guess what school? Clinton Street Public School. So it seemed to come so full circle. It's a nice way to end. What's your impression, Robert? Uh, do you think that the Clinton Street School story 
um, would be replicated elsewhere. You hinted at it earlier. I mean, if we looked at if we looked at the history of Canada through its schools, what would it reveal to us? Do you think that it has been successful in helping create a society uh, of of belonging, or or has it failed? What's what's your impression of the of the representativeness? of the Clinton Street School. I'm asking you to speculate. I mean, I recognize this is a, an original study. I mean, it's, it's exceptional, and I, that's why I really wanted to have you here in the studio because I've never encountered a, a biography of a school like this, and it's wonderful. But do you, do you have a sense that this kind of story could be was replicated elsewhere? I think it probably was. Um, I think that most major Canadian and American cities, in one way, shape, or form, um, had to deal with multiculturalism on the uh, on the ground, integrate questions of integration and assimilation. But I think, for me, the the big takeaway, uh, and the reason that it's relevant today, is that what I feel, what I don't like about the debate today, is the way in which it's become polarized. Mm. Polarized as if there is multiculturalism on the one hand. Um, I think uh, Monsieur Bernier calls it extreme radical multiculturalism and uh, on the one hand or assimilation on the other. Those seem to be the, the polar opposites and you really have to choose between the two. And what I think the history of Clinton Street School shows is that it really isn't a question of either or. It's a question of more or less. And they really worked out the various positions along that spectrum. Um, all of which provide a middle ground, which is what I think we desperately, desperately need to find uh, or refine today. Find the middle ground in the um, in the schoolyard of Clinton Street School. That's right. Thank you, Robert. Thanks for taking the time to uh, share your 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 thoughts on on this on this wonderful book. I repeat, the I was speaking to Robert Vipon, the author of Making a Global City: How One Toronto School Embraced Diversity, and it's published by the University of Toronto Press. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you'll find more about what the Society does, including its publications, its blogs, and more about these podcasts. There's even a place to become a member and a sustainer of the Society if you like these conversations with historians or political scientists about Canada's history. This podcast was made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. Thank you. Thanks also to the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation and the L.R. Wilson Institute for History at McMaster University for their support of these recordings. My name is Patrice Duzil. This interview was recorded in the Allen Slate Radio Institute of Ryerson University. It was recorded on December 14, 2018 and produced by Heather Goh and Hugh Backhurst. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next time.